You're listening to the Sportsman's Empire Podcast Network brought to you by Full Sneak Gear. Check out their entire lineup at fullsneakgear.com. Also be sure to check out our entire stable of podcasts at sportsmansempire.com. New from Moultrie Mobile, the Feed Hub offers first-of-its-kind cellular connection and control for nearly any spin cast feeder on the market. When used with the Moultrie Mobile app, you can monitor feed and battery levels, run feeders on demand, receive alerts when feeders are clogged, and remotely adjust feeding times. The Feed Hub is ideal for anyone who maintains feeders. Remove the guesswork and save time by planning feeder maintenance before you drive to your hunting property. For more information, visit MoultrieMobile.com. Look, Bumble knows you're exhausted by dating. All the, must not take yourself too seriously, and... 6-1 since that matters. And what do I even say other than, hey? <sighs> well, that's why they're introducing an all-new Bumble. With exciting features to make compatibility easier, starting the chat better, and dating safer. They've changed, so you don't have to. Download the new Bumble now. The Sportsman's Nation Podcast Network is brought to you by Onyx Hunt. Bringing you the best GPS mapping software directly to your smartphone or desktop, Onyx offers you the ability to see property boundaries, mark waypoints, track your location, and so much more. Visit onyxmaps.com or you can download it directly from your app store today. Save 20% off of your purchase by using the code NATION20 at checkout. That's capital N NATION followed by the number 20. Hey everybody, welcome back to the Nine Finger Chronicles podcast. Hopefully everybody's having a good week. I know shit is absolutely crazy out there. So hopefully for the next hour or so, you can forget about all the problems in the world and just listen to me talk with Eric Barber about preparing yourself for your next upcoming out-of-state or western hunt. Now, we cover a whole bunch of different things in this episode. We talk about, um, I'm going to say the theme of this episode is maybe an eastern guy getting ready to go west. And it's that time of year where we all need to start planning for any fall hunt in a different state, whether that's, uh, you know, just going to another whitetail state state to hunt, like uh, I'm in Iowa, and I'm actually going to Michigan to hunt whitetails this year, and I'm also going to South Dakota to hunt mule deer this year, uh, and uh, this will be my second time out there. So basically, this episode is about maybe maybe geared toward the first timer, second timer, third timer, who's maybe even done a couple of these hunts, but things that uh, maybe you can strip from your gear list or shortcuts or preference points, uh, 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 food strategy, talking about all of it. And uh, that's what today's episode is about. And these are the kind of episodes that I love talking about, um, talking this content because it's relevant to this time of year. And I get geeked out when I start talking about new adventures that I haven't taken yet. So uh, Eric does a real good job of bouncing ideas off of me and me to him and and uh, just have a really good conversation about uh, going out of state to hunt. Now, this is kind of perfect commercial time because Eric actually works for Vortex Optics and uh, today's commercial is about Vortex Optics and um 
I, I'm a huge fan, straight up. I mean, I think I've I said this the last time, but I love working with people who are participants in the community, not just a, a guy who is, works for a company and doesn't hunt. I love the fact that, you know, the people who work at Vortex Optics are into what they make, right? Hunters and guys who love to shoot guns, uh, and they are knowledgeable about the optics that they, you know, they don't just read off a of paper, but they can translate it into how it will be used in the field. So, again, that's why I really love um, working with uh, Vortex because of that fact. Not to mention that their products are really good quality right and they have this warranty out there where if you damage or break it regardless of whose fault it is let's say you back over it with your truck it gets burnt in a house fire uh it breaks because of years and years of wear you send it in they fix it and if they can't fix it more than likely they're going going to send you a a brand new pair of optics so these guys have rifle scopes they have range finders they have spotting scopes and of course binoculars uh if you want to find out more information about vortex optics it's pretty simple go to vortexoptics.com and be sure to check out their new line of apparel that's coming out too so uh heads up on that uh other than that, I think we're ready to get into today's episode. I guess, I guess it's my civil duty to tell you all to wash your hands and don't touch other people. So, <laughs> I don't know. Anyway, here's today's episode with Eric Barber. In three, two, one. All right, joining me today, Mr. Eric Barber. Eric, how you doing, man? Good, Dan. Good to be here. Yeah, so uh, before we start talking about hunting today, why don't you fill everyone in on where you live and what do you do for a living? Yeah, so I live in southwestern Wisconsin, and I'm the social media manager over at Vortex Optics. So it's a awesome place to work, awesome company. For people who aren't familiar, where you know, obviously we make uh, optics for hunters shooters people of all interests and it's a it's a great place to be yeah i'll tell you i am a huge fan of vortex and well cut to the chase here vortex is the title sponsor of the nine finger chronicles podcast you bet (laughs) so um let me let me ask you a little bit about social media because you deal with it every day how how does a company it doesn't matter whether it's Vortex or, or any uh, any other company. How does a company exist if it's not on social media? Well, that is a great question and very timely because like you just a week, week or two ago, our Facebook page got taken down yesterday. Oh, boy. <laughs> so this is exclusive news to uh, Nine Finger Chronicles followers. <laughs> but, uh, you know, it, man, I don't know how, how a company exists in today's day and age without social media. I mean, it is the best digital way to connect with your customers, you know, whether you're answering questions um, or just making small talk. I mean, it, it's unbelievable how many people reach out to Vortex and just want to, you know, figure out what scope works best on their rifle, you know, or just get general like tips about stuff. I mean, we've had people reach out like, Hey, can you help me with my math homework? And, you know, 
that is the cool thing about Vortex is we're always there. We're always listening. And, uh, you know, we're always happy to have that conversation with people, whether it's math homework or, or rifle scopes, man. <laughs> you came to the right place. <laughs> math homework. Uh, man, I wish I would have known uh, about Vortex's hot, uh, math hotline when I was in high school. Yeah. Well, you got to consider the source. If it's me on the other end of the communication channels, you probably don't want that source. <laughs> You're not guaranteeing <laughs> that it's the right answer to the question, right? Yep, that's a big disclaimer. <laughs> <laughs> well, cool, man. Um, so, man, social media is a crazy thing, right? I mean, it, it can be used in in such a positive way. It can be used in such a, a negative way. Just... Um, you know, other than customers reaching out to you through Vortex and whatnot, what are some of the other ways that you have seen social media be positive or connect people? Yeah. I mean, man, that is the great thing. Like so many people that, that you communicate with on a daily basis. I mean, our, our conversation right here, right now, you know, I've followed Nine Finger Chronicles for forever, you know, even long since before working at Vortex. So it's cool to like connect with people that you feel like you kind of know already. Right. And then, you know, you're able to connect up. Maybe you, I mean, there's a, a, a gentleman that I work with here at Vortex who has a hunting buddy who he's been on several out of state trips on and they met online, I, yeah. I, whether that was a forum or social media, I don't know exactly which one, but it's just a perfect example of kind of the relationships that people can cultivate. And when used properly, I mean, there's no better way to get a bunch of eyeballs on a topic for better, or for worse. Right. I mean, people can use it for negative things, too. But, you know, holistically speaking here, if people can kind of get on the same page and and operate towards a common goal, it is a powerful tool that really helps us brand ourselves as hunters. Yeah. And uh, I'll tell you what, I've met uh, a couple people now in you know through social media and it has led me to work with them it has led me to, you know to for them to be uh, my friends and I, I will say good friends at that like yep. i really have connected with some guys who are some great guys who i now consider some of my good friends through social and um, absolutely and uh, that's that's a good thing man so other than just t- posting and tagging and you know managing the actual social uh, pages for vortex what else is going on so for myself man i am a a diehard uh archery hunter you know i've i've been hunting since i was you know old enough to do so in wisconsin which was 12 years old and been taken along with my dad since even longer before that and um you know the in the over the past few years i've kind of gotten more and more into expanding my horizons a little bit, starting to look at other states, hunting out West and all that stuff. Um, and that's been a super interesting learning curve for me because, you know, even somebody that works in the industry, you know, I've, I've worked in the, the hunting industry my whole career. I've worked at Midwest Whitetail prior to coming to Vortex and had a short stint at uh, the Wisconsin DNR between uh, Midwest Whitetail and Vortex. And, you know, looking at some of these out of state hunts and stuff, like I was always super intimidated, even with that background. So, you know, kind of over the last, I would say two to three years, I've really been kind of trying to learn as much about that. And the biggest thing that I've kind of taken away is that this stuff isn't as unattainable as I think people kind of make it out to be. Yeah. Uh, So you wrote an article recently, and that's why you're on uh, here today is to talk about this article that you wrote about preparing for out-of-state hunts um first off where you know where can the listener actually find the article that you wrote 
Yep. So I write for the Archery Trade Association's Bowhunting 360 platforms. So if you just go to bowhunting360.com, um, they're always rotating stuff that's on the homepage. This one was up on the homepage for about a week or two. But now if you just go to the search bar and type in DIY or Western hunting, anything like that, that's going to flag some keywords that'll pull this article up to the top. And that's, that's where you can find it. There's stuff for me and a bunch of other talented writers on there that, you know, are always covering some pretty cool stuff. Right. All right. So is this article that you have written focus more on the western side of things being a a, a, let's say an east coast guy or a midwestern guy going west or is it just in general about let's say if i want to go to a different state to hunt uh, whitetails you know i think it kind of applies to both a little bit but both of these you know there's two of them specifically one was a guide to western bow hunting and then the other one was kind of like your guide to a diy bow hunting adventure and both of those kind of play both sides but but are more specifically written in mind with somebody in the midwest or out east that wants to you know take that first step and go out to their first western state and finally you know break the ice on doing their first hunt out west cool all right so here's what i'm gonna throw in my two cents real quick and when i started thinking about hunting uh the west and specifically elk or a species that's not whitetail right because you know i live in iowa i hunt from a tree stand i have permission on private ground i hunt a little bit of public uh, and so the thought of going out west can be somewhat of an overwhelming thought process because there are different rules there are different regulations there are different uh, species there's different gear that a guy would need there's different terrain there's different uh, you know there's all these different things than what a guy might be used to and I, i became over overwhelmed in that but recently the more years i do this the less i become overwhelmed and it's almost part of the game now and you know like like just how we strategize for whitetails so is it is it something to be is is preparing for one of these hunts worth getting overwhelmed about you know i i don't think it is worth getting overwhelmed it is overwhelming like when i first started doing it there were times like i've kind of looked from afar for a while and like for a few years I was like man this is too much for me I can't even do it and I would just tap out and now I feel like I've wasted those years of you know like planning and doing some of these things building points in some states you know I'm sure that's something that we'll kind of talk talk about here a little bit um and just you know like like getting your feet wet and doing it man I mean like we're all hunters you know and even if you are a new hunter, someone that's just kind of getting into the sport, if you have a bow, if you have camouflage clothing and, you know, a means of buying a tag and putting gas in your vehicle to drive to a different state, you can do these hunts. You know, yeah. it's not something that, that requires a ton of gear or, uh, you know, an expert level knowledge to go out and do it. Right. Okay. So, you know, where where does a guy start? Because you just don't you don't want to wake up on a Friday and say, "Well, I'm going to go hunt in Idaho this weekend." Yeah, right. And drive 18 <laughs> hours and not really prepare yourself. So where where does a guy start? Yeah, you know, I think uh, it all kind of starts with taking that little inventory of like yourself, looking it inward and saying, "What is it that I want to experience?" what is my current resources of gear that I have? You know, like, do I have a backpack? Do I have, you know, 
hiking boots, whatever, you know, just kind of figure out the gear side of things, figure out what it is that you want in an experience because across the West, there are so many different opportunities, you know, from like sage country mule deer in the Dakotas, you know, or, um, you know, plains creatures in, in Eastern Colorado to, you know, high country mule deer, elk, whatever it is, you know, there's so many different experiences. So I think step one is just figuring out what you want to experience. Um, and then kind of starting to look at and build out a, a gear list from there. And maybe it's something that, you know, you're kind of looking out, um, a year from now or two years from now, and you're just kind of starting to figure out like, okay, this is what I have. This is what I need to do, you know, to successfully do this hunt. You know, I'm going to put together a quick list of gear, wish list items, whatever, and then start piecing that together. And then, you know, once you have that out of the way, once you have like, you know, your, your kit built of, of, uh, you know, a tent of, you know, all the, the stuff that you need to live out of state and hunt away from home, then it's just plug and chug, man. It's like, yeah figure out the places that you can obtain a license, figure out what it is that you want and go to those places. Because once you have the gear, you know, you can just go and if you have the license, you're set. Yeah. That's one thing that I was, I guess, most overwhelming for me was when I decided, Hey, I'm going to go on on an elk hunt. I need to make sure, I mean, I'm, I'm not just walking from my truck to my tree stand anymore. I'm putting miles on a day in some rough terrain. So, you know, I need boots. I need a tent. Yep. I need a backpack. I need, you know, all this new, new gear. And what was overwhelming for me was the initial financial cost to getting this gear. And, you know, there, I'm sure there's a whole nother topic of, you know, looking for gear that's cheaper or, yep. you know, there, you can spend as much as you want or as little as you want. Regardless, I needed new, uh, like a new skill set worth of gear for me. Yep. So that was the, the first big part that was really overwhelming for me. But I, the next year, guess what? I didn't need to do go buy all that gear again. Exactly. So, um, what are what are do you have any tips or tricks when it comes to acquiring gear for a, a new skill set? Yep, I mean for me it's all about finding stuff that pulls double duty. Like, you know, I I I think there's something there to having something that works for yourself in the whitetail woods because as a lot of us that are you know like like I'm looking at this through the lens of somebody in the Midwest who is going west. So like for me my bread and butter is going to be whitetails. So I always want to have stuff that works for that and I don't want to have to buy an entirely new kit to do stuff out west. If there's anything that I can do there to kind of pull double duty, I want I definitely want to do that. So like base layers, I always look to something, you know, like a merino that works equally as well in as in a tree stand as it is out west. Um you know, a good pair of hiking boots, that's something that, you know, if you're someone who is, um, you know, hunting whitetails in the Midwest, you're going to want that just as well as if you are hunting out West. I mean, the rubber boots thing, people have kind of, um, done that for years, myself included. And I know, you know, I've even heard, heard, uh, you and Mark Kenyon talking about this a little bit where you've kind of gone more towards the, your regular hiking boots and then wearing some kind of like insulating cover over the top of them. Right. So, it's just stuff like that where you can start to piecemeal a kit that is going to be pretty diverse. And, um, you know, as far as like clothing is concerned and then just kind of, once you get into planning like your camping stuff and all that, you know, that's also equally as important because if you're not comfortable out there, if you're not like, 
you know, warm and dry at the end of the day, it's hard to stay motivated to stay out there. You can't just go back to your, you know, your, your, uh, house and, and, you know, stay warm in your bed at night. You know, you've got to have a system there that, that keeps you comfortable, keeps your, your mind in a good place. And ultimately that's going to help you spend a little bit more time out in the, in the field. Right. Now, are there any products that, let me, let me ask you this. What's your experience thus far with taking an out-of-state DIY trip? Yeah. So first and foremost, the first year I did it, I brought way too much stuff. You know, I think that's everybody's tendency is to, like, overpack. You know, I had, like, like three dry bags filled with different clothing of different weights and all that stuff. Um, you really don't need that, you know. So, like, like, basically my current loadout is, you know, let's say I'm hunting um, – Let's just say it's it's uh, an October mule deer hunt in the Dakotas. I'm going to bring a pair of uh, lightweight pants that are, you know, fairly abrasion resistant because if it's something that I want to, you know, crawl or stalk through the sage, you want something that isn't going to get ripped up or anything. And then, you know, you're going to want a pair of base layers underneath that. And then up on top, you're going to want a, a merino base layer that, that dries and wicks moisture and, and can be worn for days on end. And then with maybe an insulating layer, like a puffy jacket over the top of that, and then finally wrapping up the system with like a, a soft shell or some kind of jacket that really cuts the wind. And then also that's going to protect your puffy. Those, you know, puffy jackets are kind of notorious for not being the most durable thing out there, but they're worth their weight in gold when it comes to, you know, warmth and all that stuff. So just having that, that kind of outer shell is, uh, is super important to, to keep everything kind of, um, protected. Right. And then, you know, once, once you, uh, you know, get going on, on some of these hunts, you'll figure out like, you know, Hey, something like this would be really nice. Maybe it's, you know, maybe you're, you're pulling double duty with your rain gear as your outer shell and also your rain protection. So now you say, well, I don't really need the soft shell because my rain jacket is also doubling as that outer shell protectant. So then you, you leave that at home. So it's kind of trial and error, but I think starting out, if you go by that system with like, you know, a good Merino base layer, some pants that are comfortable walking and covering a lot of miles in, and then an insulating layer with a shell over the top, I think you're set for a lot of stuff. Yeah. And that's one thing that I did, the, uh, you know, I've been on three elk hunts in my day. The first one was a pure DIY backcountry, sleep out of a tent, you know, go every day type of hunt. And I way overpacked for that, yep. right? Way yep. overpacked. And then um, the rest of the, you know, the hunts, like you kind of learn your lesson the first time, right? And then you become not necessarily an ounce, ounce crusher like some of these guys are where they are, you know, oh man, I got to shave this off of my gear or I got to, I have, you know, I got to find a way to cut four ounces off my pack. You know, I'm not that guy, but not that guy yet. Cause I've never had to do like a real, you know, I've had to do some, some hunts where it's physically demanding, but nothing to the point where if I get in trouble, I'm going to die type of deal. Right. I mean, so, you know, I've learned my lesson on, on, there may be parts of the day where, for, for me anyway, parts of the day where you've hiked in, you're hot and sweaty, and you get to this place, uh, and I'm just using my mule deer hunt for an example. You get to the place, you put your layers on, and the layers aren't enough. So you're cold, but you're only cold until the sun pops up over the ridge, right? Yep, so you're, exactly. So there is a little bit of toughness versus, you know, could I have drug another coat in? Yes, I could have, but... 
I didn't because it was only uh, I was only cold for you know thirty minutes as opposed to exactly you know so exactly and, and like you just mentioned there you know like you get that little bit of discomfort and I think that kind of factors in on the front end just kind of setting your expectations right. you know like it's it's a totally different mindset going from you know what I'm most familiar with of like you know let's let's take hunting uh, you know hunting whitetails during the rut for example it might suck for me from dark to dark if I'm sitting all day in a tree stand or whatever but it's, I know as soon as I'm done with that at the end of the day I come home to a warm meal and all that stuff but it's just kind of setting those expectations knowing that that's part of it that's part of that experience and you know preparing yourself mentally for it because i think people are capable of a lot more than they give themselves credit for right so you know the the tendency to overpack is something that has happened but hey guess what at least you have everything you need right right now what about on the the opposite end of that uh forgetting something or deciding not to pack something that is kind of important yep Man, that is that is the million dollar question, because it's like as soon as you leave that thing at home, you know, there's no going back and getting it. You're not going to run to a store and buy it. So, you know, kind of what I've what I've done um, to help remedy stuff like that is what I'll do is like, let's say I'm going on. a. I keep using that mule deer hunt as an example, because that's the one that I've done most frequently and I'm most familiar with. But like what I'll do is I'll set my tent up. You know, I'm in Wisconsin where. The weather isn't a ton different than what you get out in the Great Plains, you know, a little less wind, whatever. But, um, you know, I'll, I'll maybe go through a dry run in the backyard for like a uh, Saturday night or something like that. I'll set my tent up. I'll bring the gear that I think I, I'm planning on bringing. And, you know, if there's any discomfort there, I'll kind of address that as needed. You know, maybe that's um, one of the things that I'm looking at right now. I've been debating back and forth and back and forth on what kind of tent setup is, is going to be the best for me. And where I'm kind of at with that right now is I'm looking at some of these TP style tents, the floorless models that yeah. can incorporate a stove. And the reason that I'm, I'm kind of leaning that way is you get the capability, obviously, of drying out your gear, you know, warming up at night. And then, you know, also you're, you're, you're able to endure that kind of suck, so to speak. Yep. When you're out, out, you know, hunting during the day, knowing that you are going to be coming back and you have that, that, um, comfort factor to look forward to at the end of the day. Right. Out of curiosity, are you sack like for me, when I, uh, this past year, when I went on my mule deer hunt, uh, it was a, a pad, a sleeping bag, and then my own body warmth is basically what kept me uh, warm. There was a couple nights there where it got down pretty cold. So I had to put my, yeah. ba- my base layers and kept my base layers and my socks on. But what is the, is there a, a sacrifice for weight when you're carrying around one of those stoves? Yeah, man, it's unreal what some of these things weigh. Like, you know, I have, I have a, man, a 16 inch uh, MacBook in front of me right now. Yeah. And when you like close this thing up, that is basically equivalent to what some of these stoves pack down to, you know? So if you picture something about that size, that's going to be a similar shape. And then, you know, yeah, it's probably an extra, you know, let's say it adds, uh, well, actually I'm going to, I'm going to bring it up here while I'm kind of talking through it, but let's say it adds another 18 ounces or something like that, or, you know, two pounds, let's just say, but now you're able to bring, a, uh, a 30 degree or a 40 degree sleeping bag that packs down much smaller, you know, much lighter. And now you can compress that into your pack, knowing that just if you stoke that fire at night, you're going to be totally fine. Gotcha. So there is kind of like a, a little bit of weight penalty there on the, on the front end. 
But for me, and I think, you know, this is kind of what, what you even were just getting at there at there too, when you were saying that you're not, you know, an, an ounce counter, like I'm not either. So I would rather have something like that if it means adding an extra two pounds and a little bit of extra space into my backpack, but in accepting that weight penalty, knowing that, you know, I'm going to be more comfortable at the end of the day. Gotcha. All right. So when it comes to gear, is there anything else that we need to talk about for maybe a first timer, either a first timer or a guy who has already bought and he's gone through the big uh, financial crisis and he's bought all the gear for the first time. And now he's going on year number two. Yep. You know, if you're going on to, on to year number two, you know, you've probably kind of established that, that system and that kit that, that works for you. Um, the biggest thing that, you know, that I'm adding right now is stuff that's going to help me sleep through the, through the night more comfortably. That way you wake up charged up, ready for the next day. And, you know, like I, the, the first year I used just a, a regular inflatable sleeping pad and that worked great. Um, but a friend of mine that I actually work with here over, over at Vortex brought to attention, um, I'm going to butcher the name of it. I, I honestly couldn't even name it off the top of my head, but it's a, a cot that packs down to, I believe just over a pound. It's no bulkier or no bigger than the, the tripod that you're bringing with you to glass off of. And, you know, I'll, 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 uh, let you know what the, the brand is and that way, you know, you can direct people there, but this thing's like $80. It's a, it's an ultralight cot gets you just a little bit off the ground. I think maybe like two to three inches. And that, you know, that does a few things for you. One, the ground is always going to suck out all that body heat. You know, it's going to suck the heat and draw that out of you. So being off of it, you know, you're kind of protected there a little bit. And two, it's always going to keep you dry, you know? So like at the end of the day, um, you know, let's say it rained all day or something like that. You want to kind of get up off the ground and not have that, um, you know, that, that wetness of, you know, just moisture underneath you and just kind of totally drying yourself out. It really helps out with that. So the cot and the sleep system is something that's kind of a work in progress for me. Um, but you know, if now let's say on the flip side, you're somebody that's just kind of figuring out, okay, what do I want? What do I need to gear up for this year for my first hunt? The big things that I kind of look at are, are boots in a backpack, you know, like those are the things that you're going to spend the most time in and are going to do the most things for you. You know, clothing is obviously great. That's something that you're always, you're, you're wearing clothes when you're out there, but if your feet are uncomfortable and if your back is uncomfortable, I don't care what kind of clothes you have on, you're going to be hurting at the end of the day. That's a fact. I can definitely attest to that. I, I know my first, you know, my very first year I ran into some foot problems and it really wasn't necessarily things like blisters, but it was fatigue, right? I wore a, what I guess was a, a tree stand hunting boot compared to a actually hiking boot. And that caused some issues. But then when I, you know, transferred over to, I guess, more of a hiking boot, backcountry boot, then I had, you know, the, uh, everything became more comfortable and I was able to spend more time on my feet. My feet weren't fatigued. And I don't know about you, but just when my feet go, the rest of me goes. Exactly. Exactly, man. That is, and that, and that's one thing too, like, you know, a good pair of boots, you know, let's, I, you know, everyone's got a different financial situation. Um, 
you know, my dad is of the, the exact opposite mindset of me. You know, when, when him and I, we went on a, a Montana deer hunt a couple of years ago, it was a spot and stock rifle hunt. And he ended up buying boots, you know, for like just over a hundred bucks, like the week before we went out there and his feet were absolutely killing him. And, and me on the other hand, I'm like, man, I don't want to buy a hundred dollar pair of boots for this, a hundred dollar pair of boots for that. I'm going to Kind of, you know, not buy once, cry once, because I, I, I don't, I think there's value in that, you know. Yeah. So I'm gonna, I'm gonna buy something that truly plays all, all of the different things. So like right now, I wear the boot, the same boots that I wear out west on a on a mule deer hunt are the same boots that I'm turkey hunting in. They're the same boots that I'm shed hunting in, all that stuff. Right. So, you know, that's kind of going back to that buy stuff that is gonna play or wear multiple different hats and i think you'll be happier in the long run if you focus on on boots and a backpack specifically because those aren't the things that you want to like you said you don't want to find that out day three of a six-day hunt that man my feet are killing me and i don't want to get up in the morning yeah yeah so boots are very important piece of gear what about a place where a guy could skimp on and he's you know it's like well i don't need to necessarily have the best one of these to experience a good hunt yeah. Um, you know, it's, it's tough. I would probably lean towards, um, man, I would probably lean towards whatever your outer layer is, your, your very most outer layer. So that shell, you know, you can find if, if you're trying to, you know, just get by, you can go with, you know, any brand of clothing out there on, on the shell that is, I think your base layers are truly very important, but when it comes to the shell, you know, maybe you're looking to save a little bit of money. You find just a good, um, even maybe it's a, a solid colored, not hunting, not hunting name brand, but just some kind of piece that that does all different kinds of things, and you buy that for for a soft shell. Maybe you do that for your puffy as well. Maybe you buy like a Columbia brand puffy versus you know the brands that are more specific to um, like like us as hunters, you know, because that stuff knows no boundaries. You know, it's going to do the same thing. A, a brand X puffy jacket filled with you know, down or synthetic, whatever it is that you choose to go with is going to do the same thing of a, a different brand that just happens to be marketed towards us as hunters. So not to throw like the clothing companies under the, bu- the bus, because I think they make incredible stuff. Um, and I own a lot of it, but that's probably something where if I was looking to save a little bit, I would probably sacrifice there. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, definitely that base, base layer is very important. Yep. Um, because I think, like you said, it can do multiple things for you, right? Absolutely. Not just one. So, um, you know, we've talked about we've talked about gear, and it's almost like we could sit here for hours and talk about experiences with gear and different things that we like. Um, the the last thing that I kind of want to talk about, and it kind of falls under the gear, because it's something that you're going to be bringing with you is food and water, especially. Um, you know, obviously, if you're hunting out of a truck or a lodge, you have all that stuff back at the, you know, at the truck at the end of the day or at the beginning of the day. You can wake up, eat breakfast, uh, you know, pack your snacks with you. Uh, but when you're hunting out of a tent, that's a little bit different. What What yep. is your food routine? So what I've done for food is I've just kind of gone the freeze-dried route and you know that's something that is still also a work in progress with me i've done the mountain house i've done the heather's choice you know and and they're all great things um i just you know i love to snack like i'm someone that's that's you know snacking all day so on the food side i just try to find as much variety as i can pack into it 
without it being ridiculous. So, you know, maybe that's having one brand of like a breakfast, a different brand of a totally different flavor for lunch. You know, I don't, I don't want to have the same breakfast every day for five days. Like I like to kind of have that variety. So I'll kind of pick and choose that when it comes to the freeze dried stuff. Um, and then for water, you know, I, I actually just had this conversation with, with somebody else. Um, you know, it, it depends where you're at. It depends what the water looks like in that area you know that you can go a lot of different filtration routes i've used like a steri pen um or some of those uh those sawyer um gravity filters in yep. the past and worked great um but you know a, a friend of mine that you know that i i am constantly picking his brain on you know he mentioned what he what he'll do in a situation is he'll bring like a five gallon thing of water and he'll literally strap it to his pack you know, maybe you're packing in, you know, a mile, two miles, you're not going super, super far. So this is, you know, disclaimer, this is for the folks who are kind of setting up that spike camp out there, you know, maybe a mile, two miles from the trailhead or something like that. You're not truly going remote. And if you are worried about that water, you know, maybe you load one guy's pack up a little bit heavier and then keep one lighter because you're knowing that you're going to strap that water onto the back. And then you can just buy any kind of water jug and then make sure that you have that strapped in really good on the backpack. Yeah, it's a temporary suck for, you know, whatever it is, that two miles or so. You're, you've got a heavy pack, but, you know, that weight is going to go down through the week. It's not like when you're packing out at the end of the day, um, you're bringing that water with you every day because you're bringing an algae that you're pouring that into when you're going out on your day hunts from camp. And then at the end of the trip, when you are going back, hopefully you're, you're bringing a, a load of meat out as well. And then at that point, whatever container it is that you brought your water in, now that's empty. So now you're, you're good to go there. You know, it's just, it's, it's a temp, you know, we always kind of go back to that temporary weight penalty. It is one of those on the front end, but if you're in a place where you're unsure about water, or maybe you, you don't have a ton of experience filtering or anything like that, that's something that I think is important to throw out there because you can literally just bring it with you. Um, and, and deal with that temporary inconvenience to, to have that peace of mind at the end of the day that, Hey, the water that I'm drinking is safe and I'm going to be okay. Yeah. Yeah. I, uh, I learned a hard way this, this year where my, my water filtration system stopped working. Right. So, Oh man. Yeah. And it sucked. So the other guy left, he had enough water to where he left, left his filtration system back at the, um, at the camp. So it was either go all the way back to camp or fill mine untreated, my thing up untreated, and use the pills instead of an actual filtration yep. system. Now what you're what and I've had to do this a couple times where you're the water that you're drinking is fine to drink. It's just got sediment in it or it's got some other things in it that if you look at it, it and, and even the taste may be a little bit off, but it the pills actually treat it right so yep. um we've had to i've had to do that a couple times and that's uh that's that's something that i would always have a backup for is the pills absolutely always have the backup that is a great point i mean because like like the steri pen you know those things are some of them are battery powered you know so whether you're using iodine tablets or or whatever you know just having that it's super light i mean it, it literally is is in a couple ounces at at most you know just having that in you know in your glass pack in your backpack whatever you know making sure that you have that on you that's an important thing to consider for sure yeah and we also did the thing where i i packed in extra water 
I packed in extra water. Gotcha. And I'm glad I did because yeah. this uh, I was glassing off of my pack and I didn't notice it, but my mouthpiece to my platypus was as I'm leaning on it, it was pressed down and all of the water for the entire, I would say, day, uh, day and a half leaked out oh, of my no. bladder. So <gasps> luckily we found a, like this this spring out there that was kind of full of water but i'm telling you man it was it was uh, it was scary for a while because you know you're hiking you're you're hiking back to water and you got cotton mouth and you're feeling drained and and it's not a good feeling being dehydrated definitely you know that's that's one thing like that is not the place to skimp is on whatever your your water plan is that is the place to you know don't try and get cute with it. If, if you're unsure, like you said, bring the water with you, man. I mean, you're going to – the last thing you want to do is be five miles deep, shoot something, and have no water, nothing to hydrate yourself with, and you're you're putting your body in overdrive. And, yeah, yeah that's not a good situation to be in. Yeah. However, uh, what I will say is something like a, a camp stove where you're boiling your water out of you know, like what's a, what's a brand out there so people – Yeah, can... jet, jet boil. Jet boil, um, yeah. and, Yep, they they make a great one. The other one that I've kind of looked at a little bit is the uh, the MSR Mountain Safety Research. Yep. They make some really you know super light, yep. uh, super handy attachments for those really tiny uh, butane or uh, yep. uh, propane uh, LP stoves or whatever. Yep. And man, those things are are worth their weight in gold. Being able to like let's say it is a winter hunt, you know, and you're 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 uh, in need of water, you can just boil up snow melt that down and then you're you're set you know yep. so having something like that and even just you know we, we always kind of go back to this uh comfort factor you know i'm a coffee drinker yes so to be able to literally wake up in the morning roll over start that that uh msr or your jet boil get it going without even leaving your sleeping bag and enjoy a, a fresh cup of coffee yep. right in your tent man that is worth a million bucks yeah yeah the, the simple things right that just kind of re-energize the mind you know through feeling right it's like exactly oh, that. Uh, one of my favorite things to do was do the morning hike right and i don't yep. I, I wake up i chew on a a you know, like a 450 calorie cliff bar or whatever. I don't cook my breakfast usually. Just wake up, stuff my face with what, you know, what's around me, pack and yep. go. And then I'll, I'll cook my dinner at night before I go to bed. But yeah, get exactly. to the, get to the glassing point or get to, you know, whenever first stop is and have my coffee there. And that's almost like a, the energizer for the rest of the day. I don't know. I, I, yeah, I'm a, I love that routine. Hundred percent, man, and that's the that's the thing that is so interesting to me. It's like you know, you you spend all this time thinking about um, the hunt, and you know, you have obviously when you're in your planning stages, you're hoping that you're going to be successful in the form of of killing an animal or something like that. But the first the first uh, western hunt that I ever went on, um, and even again this year, you know, I, I ended up uh, I was fortunate enough to shoot an antler of this deer on the last day but out of out of those two hunts you know i they they didn't go down or that as you would have kind of drawn it up ahead of time you know like they were they were you know you always picture yourself man i'm gonna get this crack at this awesome mule deer this awesome elk whatever 
But at the end of the day, you know, you're sitting there and you're, you know, here we are talking and telling stories about where we're drinking our coffee in the morning. And you're going back to that experience and less about like, oh, I put this in the freezer or that on the wall. You know, it's way more about like waking up in camp and watching the sun come up over the badlands, whatever. I mean, that's kind of that's what your ultimate takeaway is. Yeah, absolutely. All right. So. That's food. That's water. We talked a little bit about some gear. Now let's talk about, because the other thing about where guys can get overwhelmed is where to hunt and tags, right? Because, uh, you know, it sounds like me and you hunted South Dakota this year. Yep. Uh, Yep. So we have to have our tag. If if we're non-residents, we have to have our tags applied for and purchased by April 1st of this year, right? Yeah. And different states require different times that a non-resident has to buy their their tags and there sometimes there's draws and point and preference points that are all come into play is there a simple way to organize all this so i've what i've done in the past you know we all a, a lot of us as hunters you know we use a system like onyx maps you know that's something that, that we pay for to have access to you know either a state uh, individual state or the entire country another thing that i have found to be extremely worthwhile you know it's worth the price of admission is go hunt um because that'll help you figure out like you know whether or not a state is attainable or not um and if you're not interested in kind of that that pay-to-play model of you know paying for the access to that information you can all of that stuff is readily available by kind of doing that extra legwork. Um, so, you know, let's say a state like South Dakota, for example, you know, if, if you're if you're not um, in the know of that April 1st deadline, you know, you would have had to call or somehow find out about that. So reaching out to these states, identify the states that you want to hunt, identify that terrain and all that stuff that you want out of your experience. Crosswalk that with the states that offer that kind of country. And then reach out to their, you know, fish and game agencies and you're going to be able to figure out like, okay, you know, this state is something that I'm going to be able to draw this year. Whereas this one, I might have to plan three to five years out. And then, you know, I compile that stuff in a, uh, in a spreadsheet. I have uh, my hunting partner is somebody who is very, very spreadsheet organized. So that helps me out a bunch where that that's kind of how he likes to organize his stuff. And um, then we know like, okay, this year, this is what we're going to do next year is this. So we, you know, at this point, just kind of by doing a little bit of research, we've almost mapped out like roughly give or take a five year, you know, loose plan of hunts that we'd really like to do and that are going to be attainable in that period. Yeah. So and that's that's a mixture of your over the counter stuff. And then that's a mixture of stuff, you know, for example, building up some some Wyoming elk points, hope to hunt, you know. Uh, a really cool unit out there in the next few years. So that's one that we are building points for. And then it's just a matter of knowing that, okay, this is the the deadline for submitting preference points. Um, I need to make sure that I have that reminder set in my phone. So when let's, whatever it is, October 31st, when that rolls around, I've already submitted that point knowing that my, you know, I'm kind of building this system to fall back on and use to, to leverage that tag a few years down the road. Right. Right. So long story short, keep documentation of, yes, (laughs) keep some kind of documentation, some organization, um, notes, whatnot. Um, and you know, uh, 
you probably don't need to go too overboard with it if you're just looking for over-the-counter tags. But yep. when you start to play the preference point game, and I've, I'm right now, I've only done that with one state, and I've kind of just dedicated all my preference points to Wyoming with yep. elk, antelope, and deer. That, right. uh, you know, once you get familiar with it, you know, like, okay, it's it's this date I need to put buy a preference point or I need to buy a tag. And again, every state is different and every, um, you know, with different dates of when you can apply. And, you know, if you're a there, they don't necessarily have an over the counter method to get tags. Um, and then sometimes there's even leftover tags that after the initial draw, you can go buy a leftover tag. There's and there's mm-hmm. so many, so many things now when a when a guy says okay i want to chase elk or he or i want to chase antelope and he makes he makes a commitment to chase a specific game in a specific uh state you know what's what's yep. the next step as far as looking for property to hunt yeah so the number one thing that I, that i've done and, you know, the, the obvious there is figure out what zone or, or unit you're going to be hunting. If it's a state that is restricting you to a specific hunt area, figure that out. If it's one where you can hunt statewide, um, then obviously that doesn't apply as much. But what you can do, you know, obviously we're all using Onyx or some kind of mapping software that we're identifying public private land boundaries um, and figure out the areas that have the most. But then don't um, be afraid to reach out to those state agencies. You know, those, those wardens, especially the people who are out there covering a lot of ground every day. I've had great luck in South Dakota, specifically through a mutual friend, making a connection with a warden who is, you know, literally told me, yeah, I've noticed, you know, not that many vehicles parked in this area of this, you know, uh, unit or whatever. And then, you know, I'll go in there and, and we just have that relationship where we kind of stay in touch um, and, and he's an awesome resource for me. Right. So, and you know, that's, that's that part is, of what those guys get paid to do. They're not necessarily guides, but right. man, I, have, um, when I was back in the day, I, I haven't done this since, but, um, thing, things kind of changed, but I was doing a lot of prep work for Idaho and I wanted yeah. to go on a mule deer hunt in Idaho. Well, I called the biologist. I talk with them about numbers. Well, here, here is a good spot for this. Now, if you're looking for an older age class male, then here's a good spot for this. And then you back, you have another conversation with like a, a, a game warden or something like that. And now a game warden is something a little bit different because they're not going to call you back right away because yep. they have a, a different jobs to do. But once you do get a hold of one, you can talk to them about, hey, you know, here's what I'm looking for. I'm not necessarily looking for a, a big rack. I just want a good experience. And these yep. guys will point you in, you know, they're not they're not going to put you on the biggest buck or the biggest elk on the mountain. But what they will do is give you enough information for you to start, you know, narrowing down locations or having more. And it all comes down to more data, right? Sure. Yep. Exactly. And and on the data side, man, there's so many metrics out there that you can dig into. Like you can go into, you know, harvest metrics or herd densities or, or, you know, any of that stuff. Like that's what I've done in the past is looked at um, harvest reports. And and those disclaimer can be a little bit, bit misleading because let's say you find a unit that has, you know, that's setting the world on fire in terms of 
uh, number of animals harvested, you know, you might be dealing with a little bit higher hunting pressure. You know, we're actually one of the units that I that I look at in South Dakota has hardly anybody hunting it, but it's a great spot, you know, and it's yeah. so don't don't be misled by that stuff. You know, it's it's all data that you want to have another conversation about. So like if you are looking at a unit, you know, let's say you do notice, hey, this has a ton of, uh, you know, antlered bucks registered every year. Now I'm going to reach out to the, that area's game warden, whereas this unit, maybe it doesn't have that you know, this, this big, huge number, I'm still going to reach out and kind of figure out what the scoop is there, because I think that's how you kind of find your backdoor way into finding those hidden gems. Yeah. Uh, you got to stop talking about South Dakota, man. <laughs> <laughs> I know, I know, man, hundred percent. It's it's funny ever since I started talking about it and went on that hunt and, you know, shared the story, I've had a lot of guys be like, dude, I just want to let you know I'm going on my first mule deer hunt this year in South Dakota. I'm I'm pretty excited about it. But hey man, that's what that's what the public land's there for, right? It it is, yep. Yeah. That's and that's the the frustrating part, you know, talking about, you know, not to pick on South Dakota, but you know, with like the um you, or I guess goes to the important part of knowing like your your the state's rules and regulations. Like yeah. a couple of years ago, you know, you could just buy a tag over the counter in South Dakota and just start hunting public land. But, you know, we just kind of touched on the new rules there. Yeah. So, you know, it's just kind of like being in the know, right? You know, yeah. you want to figure out what state has the changes. And, and that's why, like, having something or or subscribing to these different states' newsletters, every state, you know, agency is going to distribute some kind of newsletter. You know, you're going to be able to stay in the know of that stuff and be able to plan accordingly. Yeah, absolutely. Which is, uh, you know, knowing the rules and regulations are are very important, not from a just to not get in trouble standpoint, right? You don't, yep. you don't want to accidentally break a law because there are some funky laws out there, but there are also some laws out there that are, are kind of unknown that some people, if you know them actually might be a benefit to you on what you can and can't do, let's say on private ground versus public ground versus access versus where you can camp or, or all, you know, there's so many different rules and regulations out there, but no, if you know the rules, a, you're not going to get in trouble and B, it actually might help you, uh, have find better success. Right. That is that, you know, that is a super good point to make yeah. because if you don't know the rules, you know, everyone kind of is comfortable with their state's rules and like, you know, even myself, like I've fallen into that um, in the past year just a little bit in uh, a state like Illinois, for example. So I've I, I hunt and live primary, you know, I, I hunt primarily in Wisconsin, whereas like when we go to a piece of public land, we don't need to put anything in our vehicle that, you know, denotes whether we're hunting, hiking, whatever. You know, public land is public land. Treat it as such. Go there. Enjoy it. Whatever. Whereas Illinois, when I first started hunting down there, I was unaware of this whole like rule that some properties require you to have like a window sticker or a, uh, you know, a sign in sheet. Yeah. So when I first went down there, you know, here I am in the parking lot with, with without any of this stuff. And I, a warden actually, you know, waited at my truck one night and, you know, gave me a warning and they were super polite, super friendly. Like it was a, a super positive experience. But the point of that experience was, you know, educating me that, Hey, this is what you need. This is what you need to do to be legal. And, uh, you know, I, th I think having those conversations proactively rather than retroactively is uh, a pretty important thing. Cause the last thing you want to do is go out there and end up like, you know, with fine slapped on you just for something that you didn't know. 
Absolutely. Absolutely. Um, let's see here. So let's talk about, you know, we, we, we touched base on it a little bit, but what are, what about digital scouting? Because obviously you can't go out there and, you know, this is a, this is a topic that's kind of been, I don't want to say beat to death, but a lot of people talk about digital scouting. I'm a huge proponent of it, even in my own properties that I hunt every single year and that I'm close to, right? So let's talk about some of the resources that hunters may have available to them when doing their digital scouting. Yep. So the, the big ones that come to mind are your Onyx or your base maps, any of those those mapping softwares that show public-private boundaries. You know, they're going to have their topography and all that stuff. But then an- another cool one that I think doesn't get as much press is uh, Google Earth. And, oh, you, yeah. know, and the, you know, there are some really cool features in Google Earth that, that – you know, are very, very valuable. One of them that I'd love to do is um, in the in the, the software, you can do the sunrise and sunset locations. So what you'll do is when you adjust that slider bar for like, let's say 7 a.m., 3 p.m., and then 7 p.m., you'll see where the shadows are at those certain points. So like as you look, let's say, for example, we're talking um, 7.30 a.m., in an area where you're you're trying to locate, you know, a bedded mule deer. Well, odds are if it's a cold day, you know, and you can find those places that are, are out of the wind, but then also sun sunlight exposed, you can kind of find these areas where you would expect the deer to bed and apply that, mark that on your map, and then know like, okay, just like I would I, I would try to identify a whitetail bedding area in the Midwest, now I'm looking for a mule deer bedding area or an elk bedding area on a late season elk hunt. Um, somewhere out west and so so the sunlight and the shadows are something that I pay a lot of attention to just because I, I feel like they do enjoy bedding in, in those sunny areas especially on cold days obviously if you're on early season hunt the exact opposite applies you know you're going to find those animals kind of bedding in the shade bedding on cuts where you know it's going to they're going to find a little bit of a cooler place to hang out all day long um, so that that's a big one with with uh, Google Earth the other one is, you know, mapping uh, way, uh, like trails and potential uh, access routes. And then, you know, maybe you're identifying that on one app and now you're going over to Google Earth. Maybe, you know, they have a little bit different imagery or whatever. Now you can zoom in and, and figure out, you know, is this road going to be maintained? Is it not going to be maintained? Any of, of that kind of thing. Right. So, you know, there's. That, that's, I think, where I'm going with that is there's no one-stop shop to digital scouting. You know, you're going to use several different tools, I think, to do it very successfully rather than if you stay in one app versus the other, you might be pigeonholed or a little bit limited. Absolutely. Absolutely. Um, now, once you, you know, once you, you know, you find these resources and you start using them, um, is there any other tips or tricks that you've learned over the years of hunting that you'd like to share with us? The big thing is like, you know, to, to get out there and, and have a very open mind. You know, when I, um, I hunted Montana, uh, I, I kind of alluded to that on a, on a rifle, uh, mule deer hunt with my dad. And, you know, I had wide open expectations on that hunt. I didn't know if we were going to be getting into, if we were going to be seeing deer all over, if we weren't going to be seeing deer at all, you know, whatever. And just kind of going into that with a blank slate and, and, uh, 
really enjoying the experience that helped me kind of get the most out of that. We were all lucky. We all ended up, you know, being fortunate enough to, to, uh, fill our tags, but, you know, even then to, to drill, drill a little bit deeper, um, is to just stay persistent. You know, like you're, we've talked a lot about backpack hunting and getting off the road. And I really do think that that's one thing, you know, your hunting pressure is relative when you're perusing forums and you hear people talk about, yeah, unit such and such gets absolutely pounded. Take that with a grain of salt because, you know, what somebody else's definition of hunting pressure is might not align with what that is to you. So go out there and, you know, keep that in mind. And then when you are, you know, putting yourself out there to hunt, uh, uh, you know, apply the stuff that you've probably already done, like get away from the trailheads, all that stuff. Um, because that, that hunting pressure, I think is something that, you know, maybe there's a million trucks driving around the, the gravel roads out there, but there aren't that many that are actually going in there, getting off the beaten path and putting that distance, you know, between them and the, the trailhead. Um, that's important. And, you know, I think kind of lastly is, is when it comes to this stuff, be mobile, like, you know, don't have a setup where, you know, I've done the wall tent thing and I enjoy the heck out of that. It's super cool to have, uh, that kind of setup. Um, the only thing that I will say with the wall tent is that's really limited me in mobility. You know, you've got this setup that takes a while to, to set up, takes a while to tear down, um, so what I've kind of started leaning more towards is stuff that I can, you know, if I hunt a spot for two days and I'm just not feeling it, I know it's not happening. It's not a chore for me to, you know, get out of there, drive, you know, maybe it's even a couple hours drive to get to another area within the state and then start hunting that. So mobility, I think, is always key. Yes, sir. Yes, sir. And, you know, mobility with the ability to bail on a plan. Right. Yes. And, and just like you said, man, have a backup plan because once you're out there, if you go all in on plan a and I don't know, there's cattle out there and there's yep. no deer or, you know, there's five other, 10 other guys, there's gotta be, you gotta have a plan B. So just in case plan a doesn't work, what's your other option driving all the way home? No, right. You, you gotta, exactly. you gotta, you gotta figure something else out. So, yeah. um, and that plan B can have a little bit, you know, it can just be a little bit planned or it can be all the way planned. Right. Cause I know yep. when, when we elk hunt, um, we have plan A and plan B are almost the same thing. And what I mean by that is, okay, if plan A isn't working, we're going to go to plan B and plan B is this, we're going to do this, 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 if that makes sense. So, yep. Yes, sir. Exactly. All right, man. Well, let's see. Where are you going this year? Are you you're, you're heading back to South Dakota? So I think I'm actually going to do uh, North Dakota this year. Okay. I have I've kind of looked you know at that state from afar um, for that any deer tag. Yeah. Um. It, it's it's neat because it's kind of a random draw. Like you know, there's really no point building that goes into it. It's just like you know you you apply for it and either you get it or you don't, and then you have the the over the counter whitetail tag um, available if you don't get the any deer. Um, and then the other state that's, that is kind of always on my short list is, uh, Montana. It's a little bit pricier of a tag. Um, but that's just a, a super fun, you know, it, I mean, Montana is a huge state. You've got everything from 
you know, break country to hunting high country mule deer and all that stuff. So, um, that's one that, that is, is also there. And we've also kind of got some spring bear plans on the docket. Um, so for the more immediate, uh, future, that's one that is going to be coming up here really soon. And, and spring bear is one too, that like you buy those tags over the counter, you know, Montana, Idaho, those are both great States. And, uh, we're kind of looking at those. Awesome, man. Well, it sounds like you've got a good year planned. Um, thanks for taking time out of your day to hop on and, and chit chat with us. I know this is a topic that a lot of, you know, everybody is always interested in uh, planning for a, you know, they want to know how to do different types of hunts because, you know, exactly. a, a hunter is a hunter. So this is good information to get out. Now, let me ask you this. Before, this we're going to close here. But what's your yep. what's your bucket list? Oh man. <sighs> Bucket list would have to be, man, I've, I've thought so hard about, uh, you know, doing a, a flying moose hunt. And I know like Alaska is one that kind of gets, um, I, I mean, that's a whole nother topic because Alaska just, you know, works differently than a lot of these States, but man, an Alaskan moose hunt is something that is always, I, I mean, I grew up watching like the Jim Shockey videos of, yeah. of him up there in the Yukon. And it's like, I can't get those images out of my head. So anytime like someone brings up a bucket list, I always default to that. Yeah. So just moose moose. Yeah. Moose. And then, you know, there are some really cool elk hunts, you know, I've, I've, uh, and, and this one actually is a little bit more attainable, but, um, you know, the, the Gila, uh, in, um, oh, man, Arizona, yeah. that, you know, that's an area that, man, I have, I, I'm not building points on that. So it's something that I really got to get on to doing if I'm going to make a dream, you know, or something that actually happens. Yeah. But man, that is just some super cool country. Like Arizona is a place that is so unique to a lot of, you know, the, the majority of the country, you know, you, you look at elk country and you think like high country mountains, snow capped, whatever. And Arizona is just a totally different animal. And like the yeah. Gila, especially being so, so stinking huge. Like that's some wild country with a, a lot of super cool animals and something that I'm like, I'm very, very interested in. Cool. So I'm obvi obviously I want to kill a mule deer. Obviously yep. I want to kill a, um, an elk cause I have yet to do that. Right. Yeah. But I think with the whole situation, um, in Canada where the caribou, the caribou populations are starting to decline. Um, yes. I don't know if, uh, caribou is going to be, you know, if caribou is going to be one of those animals that is going to be able to be hunted for too much more, right. too much longer. So there's, so I might, I might have to speed that one up a little bit to go, hunt, yeah. try to go hunt a caribou. And of course, us, my dream hunt is a Yukon moose hunt where yep. they fly you in to some kind of camp. You and another guy float down a river, you stop, you call, you set up camp on the river and then you hunt moose right throughout, yep. throughout that entire float trip that takes like five days. And then if you kill a moose, you float all the way back down, uh, you know, out and, uh, try to, you know, try to get, get out of there. And that, that, type of river hunt is definitely on my bucket list so I that was, is the dream yeah yeah and then out of curiosity africa do you do you have any desire to hunt africa 
Man, I was just talking with uh, a friend of mine that I work with about that yesterday. I, I don't, I mean, call me crazy. Yeah. You know, I, I, I don't know what it is for me. Maybe it's, um, you know, just a, a mental block for me, but I can't get super excited about doing it. Everybody that I've ever talked to that has done something in Africa has said that the, the cultural experience and, you know, seeing these animals that we just flat out never are going to see in the United States, you know, they've said it's been incredible, but for whatever reason, it's just something that, you know, I, I, I don't really spend much time thinking about. Yeah. Same here. What are your thoughts on that? Yeah. Yeah. Same here. I, I think that there's, uh, so many North American animals that I want to harvest yet that, uh, you know, I, cause I've right now I've only killed whitetails, right? Yeah. White kill, you know, turkeys and whitetails, but mm-hmm. you know, I want to shoot an antelope too. Right. And there's so much, there's so many things I want to do in North America before I get out, you know, make the decision. And that's going to be a lot of animals in North America to the point where I'm just like, um, well, I guess I'll go to Africa now. Or, right. it, you know, and it's, I have no desire. And I think a lot of it has to do with because they're not close to me. Like, exactly. You know, like a moose or an elk is, so whatever. But yeah. I'll tell you what, I was, it, when I was in Idaho, I had an encounter, I'd say a, a 40 yard encounter with a small moose, small bull moose, and it was intense. Oh, it was so intense cool, and he, he just ran by me that's all he did right so yeah uh, it was nuts dude it, it is crazy how big those animals are i mean the the first one that i ever saw in the, in the true wild i've seen them in like ss park colorado or whatever yeah and uh you know that that's a whole nother thing in and of itself but last year on a spring bear hunt out in idaho um glassed up one of those things you know about you know, over a thousand yards away for sure. And just to put in perspective how huge they are is is unbelievable because you're looking at trees that it's like, man, that can't be a super small tree and this thing's shoulder is up, you know, right there by it. So it's yeah. just, you know, it's a totally different scale. They're they're incredible animals. Absolutely. Eric man, hey, appreciate you coming on and uh we'll have to talk again, okay? You bet, man. I appreciate it, Dan. And there you have it, ladies and gentlemen. Huge shout out to Eric. Thanks for taking time out of your day to come on the podcast and chat with me. Huge shout out to all of you for taking time out of your day to download and listen to the Nine Finger Chronicles podcast and all of the content coming out of the Sportsman's Nation. Be sure to check out the Whiteboard Whitetails series. That is on the Sportsman's Nation YouTube channel. So go to YouTube and check out the, and just search Sportsman's Nation. Remember, Sportsman is spelled with an E. And uh, check out all of the content. It's turkey season, so we're probably going to have a lot of turkey talk coming up on the Sportsman's Nation. And uh, I know Parker, he's already, I think he's already dropped two turkey videos on the Sportsman's Nation YouTube channel. So be sure to check that out lastly huge shout out to all the partners of this podcast vortex optics lone wolf portable tree stands wasp broadheads ozonic scent elimination prime archery and the average conservationist please go out and support the companies that support this podcast and it all comes full circle so thank you very much have a good rest of your day week month wash your hands keep your family safe and be smart about everything that's going on out there 
have fun and tune in to whatever episodes I put out later on. And remember, I know 2020 is kind of starting a little rocky, but uh, it's very important that we still continue to give back to conservation. <music>